Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am particularly delighted uh, to spend the next hour or so with my dear friend, um, Tzvi Ish Shalom, and get into, I think, as you will see, the deep end of the pool uh, rather quickly because he brings a, a unique blend of um, wisdom and scholarship that I think you will be utterly delighted with. So let me first introduce him and then we're just going to jump right in. So Zviya Shalom, PhD, is an ordained, ordained rabbi, a professor of wisdom traditions at Naropa University, and is the founder of Kaduma, a universal path of ancient Hebrew wisdom that teaches a step-by-step -step approach to spiritual awakening and personal development. Zvi is the author of the book, The Kaduma Experience, The Primordial Torah, and the forthcoming Sleep, Death, and Rebirth, Mystical Practices of the Kabbalah. So welcome, my dear friend. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to um, chat with us. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a, yeah. this is a delight. <laughs> I wanted to share at the outset um, one of the reasons of many that I'm so thrilled to have discovered your work and to um, have developed a, a relationship friendship with you is that when I first came up across your book, the Kaduma, and please correct me if my pronunciations are wrong with anything that I utter during our time together, but I was so struck by uh, the commonalities of the Kaduma teachings and what you then um, put into the book that is completely in harmony with my understanding of, of what you and some other scholar practitioners are doing, this idea of trans-religiosity, these cultures, these traditions that really transcend um, tradition concept altogether. And, and as you well know, in Buddhism, Dokshen, allegedly the highest of the Tibetan Buddhist schools, um, can arguably, arguably transcend Buddhism altogether. Um, I think Kaduma certainly falls into that char uh, characterization. There are others that meet at this kind of um, trans-conceptual level. And so I found that really exciting. And also the rare blend that you bring as a scholar practitioner that brings so much extra weight to me that you, in fact, this book was a, fundamentally a series of transcriptions from some live teachings that you did. And, and you share, I have to say, in the most marvelous way these truly inspiring stories of of both your awakenings and um, your uh, trials and tribulations. And it's really completely magnetizing when I read the sort of text. So with that said, I think what we should start with with our with our listeners is maybe a few definitions because um, certainly until I came across your book, I had no idea what Kaduma was. I had some marginal traffic with um, teachings from the Torah. So can we start with that, Zvi? I mean, let's define a couple of things so that we have a running vocabulary as we go forward. So talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the relationship of Kaduma to Torah and actually what we're talking about with those terms. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and your, your pronunciations thus far have been uh, stellar. So uh, uh, so that's impressive. That's, that's We'll see. It usually doesn't go that way. <laughs> um, so the word, let me start with Torah since that's more fundamental. Um, the word Torah is typically known as a, 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 it's a Hebrew word that means teaching, but it's usually used to refer to the 
the the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the, what's known as the the Hebrew Bible, the five books of Moses primarily, followed by the books of the prophets and the books of the writings, which constitute the 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 canon of ancient Hebrew scriptures. Uh, however, traditionally speaking, the word Torah is actually used to refer not just to the to the Hebrew scriptures, but really to the totality of the teaching, which includes all of the oral uh, teachings that were passed down over you know thousands of years, alongside the written Torah, the, you know the, the scriptural texts. It also includes, under the umbrella term Torah, the many practices and um, rituals uh, and prayers. It's really the totality of the path, of the way, of the teaching. And in this sense, the word Torah is very similar, I think, to the way the term Dharma is used in Buddhism. Yes. That it does not just refer to a specific text, but really to the totality of the teaching, which includes the practices and the many pathways to attain realization. Mm-hmm. And then how about, oh, sorry, please continue. I was just going to see how, how does that relate then to Kaduma? Yeah. So within the Torah tradition, using again this, this more broader sense of Torah, we have many streams of wisdom which include both exoteric and esoteric dimensions and so uh, the esoteric dimension of torah is typically known by this term uh, kabbalah or kabbalah depending on the pronunciation um you know kabbalah which is the the traditional pronunciation of the hebrew has become more popular in new age circles in recent and probably the last decade. And so in many ways has been dismembered from the original context of Torah. However, traditionally the Kabbalah tradition, which really represents the, the the wide spectrum of Jewish mystical teachings um, is inextricably wed to the the exoteric teachings of um, of Torah. Um, I suspect that in some ways, this, and maybe this is also a question: Is this also the case in uh, in many lineage streams of, of Buddhism that uh, the esoteric uh, dimensions were originally totally intertwined with the, uh, the traditional exoteric contexts of those teachings? Yes, for sure. And as you know, and, and I love the way you bring this forth in your own writings, they're often self-secret, you know, within the context of the exoteric is is hidden in this kind of twilight language or, um, you know, Buddhism sometimes, Dakini code. The esoteric is, is uh, kind of embedded within the exoteric and then a close, closer reading, closer rendering of the text and the practices then reveal this deeper um, level of teaching. So yeah, there's a lot of resonance in that regard as well. Yes, that makes sense. That's very, very similar. And so, you know, when I began to really dig deeply into the Kabbalistic teachings, um, 
I did so within the framework of a very traditional uh, context and, and personal practice of Judaism, which is sort of the context that I was trained in and, you know, born into. Um, and so this brings us to Kaduma because it's important to sort of situate Kaduma within the context of Judaism, uh, which is more of the exoteric and Kabbalah, more of the esoteric. Kaduma is not a term that's typically used in the tradition. It's not a, you know, it's a term that I've, <laughs> that I've kind of, um, you know, taken as a, uh, as a kind of underscoring, you know, as an attempt to recapture or reclaim a particular wisdom stream or particular orientation or approach that I find is intrinsic to both Kabbalah and to Judaism more broadly. That is typically not articulated and understood in the formulations that I that I have encountered in the tradition. And so, you know, Kaduma is not something that until until I've kind of reclaimed the term and used it in the title of this book, and really have have been using it as a as a signifier for this body of teachings that I've been introducing over the past few years. It wasn't a term that was very well known, although it does appear in several ancient texts, and that's that was where I first encountered them. And it appears in a specific way. It, it's a term that in Hebrew means primordial or ancient, mm -hmm. but it's used uh, specifically to refer to what's called the Torah Kaduma, the, the primordial Torah. And thus the, you know, the subtitle of the book, the primordial Torah. Um, what is the primordial Torah? It's not totally clear if one is reading these texts simply through the lens of, a, you know, of, a con of the conventional mind. Because if we just read the text and translate those terms from the normative perspective of the historically conditioned thinking mind, we will tend to interpret the word Kaduma to refer to ancient in terms of time. Yeah. You know, like uh, referring back to some previous time in linear history, that there was some perhaps Torah or teaching or, or text that existed in some kind of prehistory or in some ancient time. But when understood properly, and when we really study those texts, it becomes clear that they're pointing not to a conventional sense of ancient, but they're really pointing to a, a more fundamental condition of consciousness that is the nature of our consciousness prior to the creation and the formation of thought. That is to say, it's pointing to a preconceptual or non-conceptual mode of of perception of experience and in fact the text pointed as quite explicitly they state that the torah kajuma this primordial torah is the is the teaching that existed prior to the creation of the world mm -hmm. and when understood properly and mystically it's pointing to the 
teaching that exists prior to the formation and the creation of our concepts, which is in fact the world that we perceive. Mm-hmm. It is perceived through the, in the conventional sense, through the filter of our conceptual mind. And so by sort of taking this term Kaduma, I'm, I'm reclaiming what I experience as a primordial lineage that points us uh, toward the potential of our human experience, our human consciousness to uh, ground itself, to reconnect itself, to embed itself more squarely and um, clearly in the luminous primordial ground of our being, of, of consciousness itself, and ultimately of reality. Yeah, so in this regard, it's, it's really pretty resonant, is it not, with um, terms like Dharmakaya, uh, Dharmadhatu, in, in the, in the Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you know, that which is pre-temporal, pre-spatial, and again, kind of this trans-religious, which in a certain sense you could also equally say is just pre-religious, it's something that that, that predates any level of articulation. Um, and so I think there's a lot of kind of overlap behind that. And, and so what, with your permission, what I, what I want to do here to be is, first of all, I'll ask you just one or two questions in terms of how, um, because again, within the context of what we're doing here is we, we use um, sleep and dream as a way to explore at least when we're heading to the deeper end of the pool, the nature of mind and reality. And so um, where I want to go with you in a few minutes after I kind of throw a few more introductory questions, your way is is I want to explore with you um, the idea of lucidity principle altogether, which, which is where, again, speaking of code words, you know, in my kind of vocabulary, lucid as in lucid dreaming is lucidity is a code word for awareness. So. When we talk about lucidity within the context of dreams, we're just really using the dream, the way mind manifests in that arena, as a way to explore the nature of mind, awareness, consciousness itself altogether. So that's where I want to go with you. But when when I met with you, I I want to have you share a little bit with our listeners what we had talked about in terms of um, what role do dreams play in Judaism altogether, and in particular, um, Jewish mysticism, Kaduma. Um, and, you know, I remember when we met, we talked a little bit about, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear that in in the Jewish inner yogic, what we would call inner yogic principles, that dreams abide in the, in the throat center, throat chakra, which of course is exactly where dreams, the kind of essence of mind abides when we're dreaming. So if you don't mind, um, talk to us a little bit about the role of dreams in Judaism altogether. And then um, if you feel comfortable with it, a little bit about how dreams um, have played a role in your life and how you engage in the exploration of the nocturnal minds as uh, um, aspects of your own path to this date. Yeah, sounds Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. So sure. Let me give it. Let me. Let me. Let me give this a spin. Take this for a spin, and let's see where we go. And feel free to interrupt me and okay. um, and ask. You know, if I'm something. You know, needs more clarification or. 
Yeah, so in general, um, dreams are recognized both in, you know, the broader exoteric tradition of Judaism and certainly within Kabbalah as a, uh, <laughs> as a significant feature of human consciousness and one that is, holds, holds many uh, secrets. In the Talmud, which is the main collection of, of Jewish oral teachings originally, and then, you know, about a few thousand years ago, it started to be recorded in writing and really represents the main, the main literature of the Jewish uh, exoteric tradition. There's an entire section of the Talmud that actually deals with exclusively with dreams and dreaming uh -huh. and its function. Um, and to really, if we if we look at those teachings, at those texts, we see at first glance what appears to be a paradoxical uh, relationship or understanding. Of the function of dreaming. On the one hand, the text seem to point to uh, to dreams as as not something for us to put too much weight on. Mm -hmm. Like there's this um, there's this phrase, um, you know, that's that states something like the chalomot uh, alin is the phrase in, in Hebrew that's uh, in the in the Talmud which is best translated it, it's best translated as dreams should not be uh, should not be weighted to which should not be taken with too much weight mm -hmm. or should not be you should not draw any kind of practical uh, pragmatic conclusions from dreams um, However, that's the way it's typically translated only because that phrase is really used idiomatically in a certain way. Uh -huh. So it's kind of like a phrase that repeats itself in various ways in the Talmud. And it, it's usually uh, meant as, you know, it's neither here nor there. And, but literally, the phrase, my, my understanding of the phrase is really an allusion to a deeper meaning. Because the phrase literally means loma alin veloma ridin, uh, does not go up and does not go down. That's the literal. That that's the literal translation of that phrase. So dreams do not go up and they do not go down. Okay, so taken as a kind of idiom, it's like you know, don't don't put too much in, don't put too much out. Like that, it, it, it does that make sense? Something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think actually there's a lot more to that phrase and it explains what appears to be a paradoxical and even ambivalent relationship to dreams in the Talmud because the other side of the, and I'll, I'll swing back to this point in a moment. The other side of the paradox is that on the other hand, the ancient uh, wisdom holders of Judaism also recognized dreams to have quite a bit of significance that we should pay attention to, to our dreams. Um, and this is reflected in certain traditions uh, that, for example, <laughs> the Talmud states that if a person takes a vow in a dream, 
to do something. They should, uh, uh, they should strive to, uh, to keep that vow in their waking life. Uh -huh. um, if, you know, and there's like other examples of this kind of a thing where one is encouraged to kind of, um, you know, to take seriously what happens in our dreams as if it's like waking life. So here we have this interesting, you know, and there's other examples of this, but here we have this interesting uh, polarity. On the one hand, dreams are not significant and should not be taken seriously. On the other hand, they should be taken seriously. In fact, they represent a reality akin to the waking reality. Yeah, very much so. In, 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 uh, in the kind of uh, Tibetan cartography of dreams, there's this points to the kind of spectrum of a dream, um, both in terms of uh, phenomenological appearance of the dream and, and also these, these kind of deeper philosophical usages of the dream. And so it runs from you know, mere neurological noise, you know, just discharge that, that fundamentally dreams can be um, fundamental static of the mind with, with no inherent message or deeper level of meaning. But even there, I have to interject right away that even that dream, when one becomes lucid to it, it um, that can be used for the practices of lucidity. So any dream, even a neurologically noisy dream, so to speak, can be used for the purposes of lucidity. And so it goes from this kind of lower infrared level of dreaming all the way to what are sometimes called dreams of clarity or clear light dreams, where the dream can be, you know, I've had, I've been blessed with some of these experiences and they're among the most transformative of my life, where you have dreams that are hyper real, that are more clear and real, quote unquote, than this reality. And, and those are the ones that in my own experience have been game changers because one, wakes up from that type of thing to this so-called waking reality and this appears to be the foggy dream and contradistinction to that but i just wanted to throw into the mix that this this seemingly paradoxical approach has um again correlates within the, the buddhist tradition at least as i've come to understand it so and so how, how oh, oh i'm sorry go ahead yeah no, that makes a lot of sense and actually the the discriminations you're making um, reflect more of where Kabbalah, where you know the, the mystical tradition will tend to go with uh, its understanding of dreams, because you know so far what I've shared is really the more of the normative yeah. kind of perspective on it. But actually, um, if I could say a few more things to flush out um, yeah. flush out this this sort of uh, this polarity that we find in the Talmud, the, uh, the the Talmud also says that for the most part, that the things we dream about at night uh, reflect what we're thinking about during the day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, however, it acknowledges that there are many things that that are common to dreams that. Um, that um, you know can't be explained or or could not be perceived in ordinary waking life, like the the 
one of the features that it tends to return to is this feature of a combination of opposites, which is which is uh, kind of typical of the dream state, which is in the one example given by uh, by Maimonides, a famous medieval commentary, uh, sort of a rabbinic scholar, is like seeing something like a ship flying in the air. You know, now in in the 1100s, that was something that it was it would be difficult to conceive, uh, which is when he wrote this, right? But of course, now we do see ships flying in the air, so that's kind of a funny example. Um, but it's like seeing things that uh, combine the power of imagination. They actually co call it koach in Hebrew. The power of imagination takes gets strengthened over the power of a cognition. That's the way they phrase it. So when we go to sleep, the power of cognition diminishes and the power of imagination uh, increases. And the power of imagination is able to hold uh, seemingly opposite kinds of phenomena in its purview. Um, so, so it recognizes, so that, that's all kind of, but there is no clear perspective really in the exoteric dimension in terms of how to use dreams or what the function of dreams are in the awakening you know, toward spiritual awakening or the development and cultivation of, of a realized condition. But in Kabbalah, there is more of an understanding of that. And it, and it follows some of the, the lines that you shared. Like, for example, it recognizes that, um, that it's true. There's a dimension of dreams that are, appears to be really just discharging the thoughts uh, that we've had during the day. Um, however, it, we can explain that can explain other features of dreaming, uh, and they even ask like in certain Kabbalistic texts they ask questions like, when we have a dream, we can have dreams about things that we've never thought of before, for example, that we that don't seem to reflect anything that we were thinking about during the day. Uh, we also have dreams that foretell the future. They took this for granted that one can dream something and then that thing will occur and can occur. So how do we explain that from the perspective of, a, of just the, the defrag theory of dreams, right? Which is, you know, if I'm using sort of this concept of like defragging a computer at night, they saw it kind of like that, that, you know, we'd go to sleep at night and all of the, the sort of all the impulses that the brain produces during the day and they you know and i'm now giving a little bit of an interpretation because they, they're using these esoteric terms like they use this term otiot otiot in hebrew means letters but otiot are not just letters they're symbols they're any kind of brain product mm -hmm. um that sort of produces uh, some some bit of, of data of information and it could be a sensation it could be a symbol it can be all the way to articulated speech and language as a form of communication so like in the Kabbalistic perspective uh, the brain is just producing millions of these OTO these letters quote-unquote right these uh, these sort of uh, I don't know brain impulses you probably there's probably a much better technical term from the neuroscientific perspective we're just producing them all day and there's only some percentage of those that actually come into conscious awareness 
right. in our in our in our awake state. And so all night we're just when we go to sleep at night we're tired primarily because we have millions of these brain impulses that have not sort of you know been properly organized and uh, discharged through the the you know the neural networks and so we just discharge them kind of at night um, and that's that's what and that's how they explain the Talmudic perspective that what we dream about at night are mostly things that we think about during the day it's like right. the brain is it's defragging um, so so that's one piece of it and then did you want to chime in before I? Yeah, I, I guess no. Right, again, it's just spot on um, in terms of my understanding of of obviously the dreamscape altogether. But maybe you're heading this way, so you seem to be intimating that in the Kabbalah there is uh, an analog to what we refer to as lucid dreaming or dream yoga. You know, ways to use the dreaming mind for purposes of spiritual awakening. So I, I'd love to take it in that direction because uh, it sounds like you're heading there and and again to see if in fact you've been able to engage your own dreaming mind in in this way on your own path yeah yeah for sure and so yeah i'm going in that direction on the same yeah um so obviously there's you know like like in like in dream yoga and um there's so much uh to it in Kabbalah, but in essence, in order to understand really the perspective on dreaming and how it can be used on the path, it's like from their perspective, and perhaps this is one difference with what you shared in, in the Tibetan tradition, is that, or in the tradition of lucid of lucidity, in the Kabbalah tradition, primarily, the um, the depth potential of dreams and sleep. In general, as a as a time for deepening the path, occurs once we have kind of a, once we have uh, passed through and completed the defrag process. So it's kind of like this two stage thing where first the mind has to get clear, has yep. to get clear of its content, yep. and. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.